0: Thanks everyone for coming. Um, yeah, most of my work has been on sort of the aftermath of conflict and now I've gone down a, a rabbit hole of uh, looking at terrorism in the context of civil wars. And the the motivation for this project, I didn't intend to become a scholar of terrorism or to work on this, but I started looking at some of the literature on terrorism because I was interested in civil wars and what happens uh, in them. Um, and I noticed something about the terrorism literature, which was that, well, um, uh which was that. Uh, Most of the terrorism literature, almost all of it until very recently, but still uh, almost all of it, looks only at the groups that use terrorism and doesn't look at groups, um, otherwise similar groups, that don't. And so that means that we don't have any variation and that makes it really hard to answer um, pretty basic questions that we are interested in about terrorism, including its causes uh, and its consequences. and as I hope will become clear from the rest of the talk, I've also realized that it's really important to study those two questions together, the causes and consequences uh, questions, because uh, the causes of terrorism are related to when groups who might use terrorism think the effects that they think it will have. And to understand the effects and assess them properly empirically, we need to know something about uh, where and when it gets used, because it's not, it doesn't get used randomly. Um, so I'm going to talk about two questions today which makes for kind of a lot in a talk and I'm going to try to go through it you know relatively quickly um, and uh, the first question is why do groups resort to terrorism why in the context of civil wars do some rebel groups use terrorism and others don't so for example if we think about Kurdish separatist groups uh, the Kurdish separatist group in Turkey, the PKK, versus Kurdish separatist groups in Iraq, the PUK and the KDP. The PKK has had um, a deliberate strategy of attacking civilians indiscriminately of terrorism, uh, car, car bombs, bus bombs, that kind of things, but the PUK and the KDP haven't. So why? What explains that kind of variation? And in the set of cases that I'm going to be looking at um, for the purposes of, of this presentation, um, which are just post-Cold War cases, uh, slightly under a quarter of them use a deliberate strategy of terrorism. And I'll, I'll tell you what I, my definition of terrorism in a minute. Um, but about three-quarters of them don't. So why that variation? That's the first question. And then the second question is the effectiveness question. Does it work? Is it an effective strategy for achieving political goals? And this is something that's been debated at great length in the terrorism literature. I won't give you the full lit review, but as you can see, um, the prevailing view, there are a few dissenters on the, in the no line there, but the prevailing view is that terrorism is an effective strategy. Um, but as I've said, the existing studies aren't particularly well-suited to answer this because they're not comparing groups that use terrorism to groups that don't. So what I'm trying to do in this project is to use civil wars, which I know something about from my previous work, as a testing ground to try to answer some of these questions. And rebel groups engaged in civil wars give us a universe of relatively comparable cases. These are all groups that have political grievances, they're organized to fight, they're willing to use violence, but some of them use terrorism and some of them don't. So we get that kind of variation that gives us empirical leverage to answer questions. So in these data that I'll talk about today, there are 104 rebel groups in full-scale civil wars. Uh, I'm in the process of collecting a larger set of data on 404 groups over a longer time period and lower levels of conflict and more fine-grained data that varies over time, but I'm still in the process of that, so I don't have those results yet. Um, But to give you sort of a sense of what I'm doing here, um, not all terrorism takes place in civil wars, and not all civil wars have terrorism, but I'm looking at the stuff that happens in civil wars and comparing the terrorism cases to the non-terrorism cases. Um, So an overview of what I'll do for the rest of uh, the talk, I'll say a little bit about how I define terrorism. That's obviously a very thorny issue and how I measure it. Then I'll talk about the first question, why groups resort to terrorism. I'll talk a little bit about some theory there and give you some findings, uh, preliminary findings. Um, And then I'll turn to the second question about whether it's effective. Again, some theories of kind of the pros and cons of terrorism and what I've found so far, and then I'll wrap it up. Um, Okay, so what do I mean when I say terrorism? This is a very um, contested term. Um, And what I mean by terrorism is the systematic use of deliberately indiscriminate violence against public civilian targets, to influence a wider uh, audience for political aims, um, so this is a much narrower definition than many that are out there. Most definitions of terrorism are so broad that they would encompass encompass all rebel groups. If you use that definition, any rebel group is a terrorist rebel group, and then I have no variation, and so I need a, I need a more uh, narrow definition, um, for that reason. But I also think that if you lump too much into the terrorism literature, it's, uh, into the ter- terrorism definition, it kind of le- loses its meaning. Um, so one of the main things that I want to exclude from my definition is the main type of violence that occurs against civilians in civil wars. And this is a type of violence that almost all rebel groups engage in and almost all governments who are involved in civil wars engage in. And that's a, a discriminant, or at least they're trying to be discriminate. Type of targeting of people who are thought to be collaborating with the other side. So, if I kill Bobby because I think he's collaborating with the with the government, that's a discrimin at least, or maybe I you know I'm trying to kill Bobby and I I miss and I kill somebody else. I'm not deliberately um, engaging in indiscriminate violence. So I want to exclude that type of kind of ubiquitous violence against civilians. Um, and I also think it's worth saying I don't want the definition to be based on my view of whether the cause that a group is fighting for is just. So there can be groups that are fighting, you know, I'm not going to make a distinction between a freedom fighter and a terrorist. You can be a freedom fighter who uses terrorism. You can be a rebel group that has um, reprehensible goals from my perspective and not use terrorism. So there's, there's not that connotation uh, to the definition. Um, Okay, so how do I know terrorism when I see it, especially for a quantitative analysis a bunch, across a lot of groups? So I'm relying here on data collected by a former student of mine, Jessica Stanton, who looked at strategies of violence against civilians in civil wars, and one of the strategies that she looked at and that she coded involves the use of small-scale excuse me, small scale bombs, car and bus bombs, suicide bombs, to attack public civilian targets, restaurants, <coughs> buses, markets, that sort of thing. So I think this is a fairly good way of capturing... Maybe not all, but most uh, violence that falls under my definition of terrorism, and it fits pretty well with kind of our general sense of what a terrorist attack is. Um, and if I go through the set of rebel groups involved in civil wars and apply this measure, it captures the one that we think of, the, the ones that we think of as terrorist groups, so the PKK, the IRA, the FARC um, and, and many others. Um, so that's how I'm measuring it for the purposes of this project. Um, okay, so the first question, why do some groups resort to terrorism and others don't? So there's a huge literature here and kind of a laundry list of causes. And I think a lot of what's out there in the literature um, can kind of be captured under what I'm sort of grouping as, as two, um, two variables about efficacy and legitimacy cost. And as I'll get to in the second part of the talk when I'm talking about its effectiveness, terrorism in general is not a very effective uh, for strategy for achieving political goals, in part, large part because the legitimacy costs of using terrorism are so high. But the efficacy and legitimacy costs of terrorism vary, and so where it is more efficacious and less costly in terms of legitimacy, we should see more of it. And, and this is sort of the set of variables that I think help capture that, and I'm going to go through them each in turn. So the first one is the regime type of the government that the rebels are fighting against. I think there are reasons to believe that terrorism should be more effective against democracies. Um, democracy. If the logic of terrorism is to inflict pain on the civilian population so that they will then put pressure on the government to make concessions to your group, that's all going to work much better if the government is actually accountable to the civilians on whom you're inflicting the pain. Um, and I think there's also reason to think that uh, democracies might be more easily provoked. All governments tend to be provoked by terrorism, but if you provoke an autocracy they tend to get provoked sort of to the too brutal end of the spectrum and crack down on you too hard and wipe you out, whereas um, govern- uh, democracies maybe get provoked to a sort of middling level of brutality which is good for you in terms of provocation. And I'll come back to the provocation strategy a bit more later in the talk. Um, I think legitimacy costs should also be lower. There's less backlash. Um, if The people on whose behalf you claim to be fighting think that the the population as a whole is actually responsible for the government in power, as is true in a democracy. um, And provocation undermines the legitimacy of democracies more than the legitimacy of autocracies, whose legitimacy is based on kind of maintaining law and order. So we should expect more terrorism against democracies than against non-democracies. There's a lot of stuff in the literature about religion and terrorism Um, to the extent it has an effect I think it does by setting up an us versus them kind of um, dichotomy that lowers the legitimacy cost to the population that a a rebel group claims to be fighting for, targeting the other. Uh, is is easier to justify, and religion is itself a legitimating device. So the legi- legitimacy costs of using terrorism against a group that is from a different religion may be lower. So we should see more terrorism where there's a difference in religion between rebels and uh, the folks they're fighting. Um, and then there's also a lot of stuff in the literature about secessionism and terrorism. Most of the terrorism literature thinks that we should see more terrorism by secessionist groups. Than non-secessionist groups, or Pape's um, well-known argument about terrorism against foreign occupiers would fit in this category. Um, but I actually think there are reasons to believe that secessionism has the opposite effect, or at least uh, effects going in both directions, which is that secessionist groups, what they want is an independent state. And to get an independent state, they have to get Uh, recognition from the international community, and so they have an incentive to show that were they allowed into the Club of Nations, they would be good, upstanding members of the international community, and so they've got incentives to abide by international law and not violate the norm against terrorism. Um, we might also think that the legitimacy costs of using terrorism are strongly affected by how rebel groups fund their fight. If they rely on civilians, then they will be more constrained by the legitimacy costs of involved in attacking civilians. If they've got external funding, they've got to worry about whether they're external funders, are opposed to the use of terrorism or don't care and if they rely on uh, crime or loot, diamonds, drugs, that sort of thing those uh, commodities don't care whether civilians are being targeted or not so the legitimacy cost should be lowest um, for groups that are relying on those kinds of Financing sources, and then I think there is something about uh, how the government is treating civilians and whether or not it's abusing the population that a rebel group is fighting for that feeds into the legitimacy cost argument. This is partly a reciprocity argument: if the other side is doing it, it's more okay for me to do it. Um, And it's also, I think, uh, has to do with how uh, local supporters feel about it. And this this insight comes out of um, stuff from the IRA, where it was fairly clear that the Catholic uh, Irish population wouldn't countenance huge civilian casualties because, as some of them put it, um, they just didn't feel like they were oppressed enough to to justify that that kind of behavior. Um, then there are a bunch of other arguments that are out there that maybe don't fit as easily under this kind of efficacy and legitimacy cost argument. The, the main argument that's out there about why groups use terrorism or don't is the argument that terrorism is a weapon of the weak. This is this is like gone beyond conventional wisdom and into the realm of cliché, right? This is sort of, I, I have yet to read a text on terrorism that doesn't talk about terrorism being a weapon of the weak. Um, and, and people mean different things by weak. Sometimes they mean military strength relative to the government. Sometimes they mean popular support whether they've got territorial control, all sorts of things, but they all sort of group together this idea that weaker groups should be more likely to use terrorism than stronger groups. There are also arguments about a political competition among groups who all claim to represent the same population and that they might have incentives to increase the use of violence and use more extreme types of violence. Um, As part of that competition, this is an outbidding argument. There are also arguments about extremism and terrorism. I'll come back to in just a second. And there's a lot of stuff out there, especially in the popular imagination and popular literature about the relationship between Islam and terrorism. Um, I want to say a little bit more about the extremism argument because it's. I think most of the rest of them are fairly straightforward. Most of the arguments about extremists being more likely to use terrorism turn out to be circular or tautological, right? So extremists are more likely to use terrorism. How do we know if a group is extremist? Well, because it's using terrorism, right? So that's not very helpful. So I tried to think about a way to get at this argument that wasn't tautological. And so the way I conceive of extremism here is the distance between uh, what a rebel group claims to be fighting for the distance between that and the status quo. So if they want to change things more radically, they are more extremists than if they want to change things less radically, independent of what kind of tactics they use in the war. Um, so it, civil wars tend to get grouped into two categories, those over territory. So. I, group who's fighting for greater autonomy or secession for a chunk of the country. And so secessionists there are more extreme in my conception than those fighting for just autonomy because they actually want to redraw the borders of the state. Um, And then the other type of war are wars over, it's referred to as, you know, over the government center. They want to take over the whole country or change policies within the whole country. And there, there are some wars that are essentially just a power squabble. I want my guys to be in power instead of your guys, but I'm otherwise not going to restructure society as a whole versus wars where a rebel group really wants to change things for everybody, to change a uh, capitalist society to a communist society or vice versa, to institute Sharia law in an otherwise secular state or vice versa, to actually really transform society. So I think of the secessionist groups and and those fighting to transform society as being more extreme than the autonomy and power struggle groups. Um, And so the hypothesis here from this argument would be that more extremist groups are more likely to use terrorism. Um, okay, so just to tell you what I've found so far in my research, and I should say that I don't have the data to test all of these arguments uh, yet. So the, for example, the rebel financing and government abuses bits, I don't yet have the data in there, so I don't have findings yet. Um, and the stuff in the, that's marked off in the square here are the things that have to do with efficacy and legitimacy. And I, so far, for the ones that I do have data for, I'm finding support for these arguments. So we see more terrorism against democracies. Now remember, I'm talking about just the universe of cases of civil war. So So many democracies are less likely to have civil wars in the first place, but if they do, they are more likely to have, the rebel groups in those wars are more likely to use terrorism. Um, If there's a religious difference between the rebels uh, and the government they're fighting, more likely to see terrorism. The secessionist finding is not terribly strong, but it is in the right direction for this idea that secessionists are less likely to use terrorism because they're worried about legitimacy costs. Um, But then if you think about the extremism argument, it's really looking at these two variables, secessionist and transforming society, and there I'm finding either no effect or things going in the wrong direction. So I'm not finding that extremist groups are more likely to use terrorism. One of the most, probably the most surprising thing i found in this uh, analysis so far is that I have found virtually no support for the idea that terrorism is a weapon of the weak. Now, I'm looking only at relatively strong groups because I'm looking at full-scale civil war, so these are these are pretty strong rebel groups. But within that category, the stronger ones are no less likely to use terrorism than the weaker ones. I also don't find support for the outbidding argument nor any relationship between whether the the rebel group is Muslim uh, and the use of terrorism. And there are a couple control variables. And I can talk about the This is logistic regression. I can talk about the methods if you're interested. Um, But let me turn instead, in the interest of time, to the second question. This is the does terrorism work question. So first of all, what do I mean by does it work? How do we know whether or not it's effective, and what does effectiveness mean? So I'm thinking about effectiveness here in the sense of does it help groups achieve their ultimate political goals? A lot of the literature refers to the effects of terrorism on shorter term or sort of lower, Uh, level goals, like helping to recruit uh, people to your cause, or gaining publicity, or uh, considering success as how many people the attack kills. Um, And those things, I think, are important, but if they're important, from a rebel group's perspective, they're important because they help you achieve your ultimate political goals. And so that's I want to study that relationship. Do terrorist groups, um, are they more likely to achieve their political goals? And so I think about civil war outcomes along a continuum of kind of success for the rebel groups. So at one end of the spectrum uh, is what rebels most want, which is outright military victory. At the other end is what they least want, which is to be crushed and defeated militarily by the government. That's pretty straightforward. Um, a second best outcome from the rebels' perspective is to achieve a negotiated agreement. And this is true for two reasons. First of all, to have the government, to reach a negotiated agreement requires the government to recognize a rebel group as a legitimate negotiating partner, and that in itself is an important concession. And second, rebels are fighting to change the status quo How much depends on this extremism thing, but they're all trying to change the status quo to some extent, uh, and the government is fighting to maintain the status quo. So if there's a negotiated agreement, in almost all cases, that changes things from the status quo, and that means that there have been some concessions to the rebel group. Second, worst from the rebels' perspective are wars that in the data that I'm using, which come from the UCDP-PRIO armed conflict data, are wars that are categorized as ending, they sort of fizzle out. They end in low or no activity. So these are wars that have been up at the the high threshold of 1,000 battle deaths a year, and they've now dropped down to under 25 battle deaths a year. So these are groups that basically aren't causing any trouble anymore. They may be not completely eliminated because then they would be coded as a government, they would be coded as government-military victory, but they're essentially inactive. And in most cases, if you look into these cases, it's because they're effectively defeated. Um, and then in the in the middle, I put the category of ongoing war. A lot of the debate about whether or not terrorism is effective hinges on whether you code an ongoing conflict as a success or a failure. And I think that's sort of a silly debate because it doesn't need to be thought of as a dichotomy, it's in the middle. It's a group that hasn't yet achieved its goals, but also hasn't been um, defeated and is still causing trouble. So that's how I th- this is sort of how I conceptualize effectiveness and how I measure effectiveness when I'm looking um, at outcomes. Um, Okay, so let me say a little bit about why we would think that terrorism would be effective or would not be effective, and as I've already said, I generally think that terrorism is not effective. So terrorism is thought of as being part of various different strategies that rebel groups can use, and I'm going to go through each of these in turn over the next series of slides, but it's worth thinking about what Uh, terrorism, who the terrorism has an effect on. So I've defined terrorism as being aimed at influencing a wider audience. What is that wider audience? Well, the main audience, the ultimate audience, is trying to influence the government to make them concede, including possibly conceding defeat altogether. Um, But a lot of how terrorism works, works through these other populations. So I use the term aggrieved population to mean the population that a rebel group claims to be fighting for. There's also the rest of the population, the mainstream population, those who are complicitous in the sense that they support the government and those who are maybe fence-sitters, and then their international audiences. And so use of terrorism has effects on all of these audiences and ultimately the rebels' hope on the government. Okay, so going through each of these strategies, why would we think that terrorism would be an effective or a non- not effective strategy? So the logic of attrition, again, is to inflict pain on the civilian population uh, to get uh, the government to, um, to make concessions. The advantages of terrorism, as opposed to other things that rebel groups can do, mainly attacking military targets, It's a fairly cheap way to inflict a lot of pain. It's hard for governments to eliminate the group's ability to uh, conduct terrorism attacks altogether. And it's thought of as being a signal of strength and resolve. I'll get to the strength piece in a minute. I'm not so sure about this. Resolve, and and it's it's an extreme form of violence. I'm not sure that using an extreme form of violence um, signals that you are more resolved than not using it, but I'm willing to concede that there might be some advantage to, to terrorism in that Domain, but on the opposite side of the ledger, it's not a very effective strategy, right? So if you're trying to to fight a war, it has no, by definition, has no direct military value. It doesn't degrade the military's, um, the government's military forces at all. It has, it can often rally the mainstream population to the government side. Um, it tends to signal untrustworthiness because it's an extreme form of violence. So if part of what you're hoping to do is get a negotiated agreement involving concessions from the other side, they're going to be less likely to think that you'll uphold your end of the bargain if you're using a more extreme type of violence. Um, And then because in the popular imagination um, terrorism is considered a weapon of the weak, it doesn't actually signal strength, it signals weakness. Now I've showed you before that maybe that's empirically not true, but that's certainly the way it's conceived of. Um, And if you think of it as relative to something else that a rebel group could do, it does not signal that you're strong enough to attack military targets hard on. It shows that you're targeting softer targets, civilian targets, so it's not a very good signal of strength. The second strategy has to do with publicity and advertising the cause that you're fighting for, what's often referred to in the literature as the propaganda of the deed. And the idea here is that terrorism is an outrageous act that gets a lot of publicity, and so it's a good way to make your grievances known to the wider population or to the world uh, at large. And so it's good for that because it is an outrageous type of act. It tends to get a lot of publicity, more so than attacks on military targets. Um, the disadvantages are, well, first of all, in the context of a civil war, people tend to know what the grievances are already. So by, by selecting, just looking at civil wars, maybe this is less of an important uh, pathway. But it also tends to preach to the choir and can alienate the rest. They might now know that you have these grievances, but they're less sympathetic to them than they would have been had you not conducted terrorist attacks. Um, and this, this is kind of usually... Um, a bunch of these arguments have to do with generating support among the population, and there's just something odd about trying to generate support among the, po- among the civilian population by attacking the civilian population. And there's the argument about provocation, and I've said a little bit about this already, and the logic here is that you use uh, terrorist attacks to induce the government to crack down on, on the population you claim to be fighting for. That generates new grievances among that population, and they then increase their support for you. Again, terrorism is advantageous for this because it's inherently provocative and you can move a government that's otherwise sort of being restrained into this um, realm of attacking uh, your own supporters more harshly and that can generate support. On the other hand, it can actually have uh, the downside of... Uh, justifying the government in taking much more draconian measures against your group and your supporters, moving you from kind of a midly, there's a little bit of a Goldilocks nature to the argument about provocation. You want the government to react like hard enough, but not too hard. You want them to, to uh, react just right. And so using terrorism can actually move you out of just right into, um, into the too harsh realm. Um, There's also, uh, it's not on the slide here, but there's also, I've got questions about why the population would react to this strategy of provocation by supporting you if they think that you're doing this uh, rather than supporting the government if they think that you're responsible for attacks uh, by the government on your population. Um, then the outbidding argument, this is a fairly prevalent argument in the terrorism literature, and I mentioned it before, the idea of using terrorism as part of a competition among groups who are all fighting, uh, to rep- all claiming to represent the same aggrieved population. The argument here is that it, c- it signals commitment of your group to the cause, and so it will rally members of the aggrieved to your cause as opposed to other groups that maybe aren't using terrorism. Uh, and again, I have the same question about it. If, if the conflict is costly, which it is for the civil, civilian population almost by definition, why should the aggrieved then support you as somebody who's signaling that you are more extreme on the on willingness to use violence rather than moderates who might be able to reach a deal and end the conflict? Um, and the, the aggrieved population should also be thinking about supporting the group that is the most militarily effective. And as I've argued, terrorism isn't a fairly isn't a good strategy for military effectiveness because it it signals weakness. Then the last one is an argument about spoiling using terrorism when you think that a peace agreement is imminent uh, as a way to disrupt the peace because you uh, want your organization to survive. This is particularly true for groups that are more extreme in terms of uh, what they would be willing to settle for. And terrorism is good for this because it generates a lot of mistrust and can upend peace processes fairly easily, in part because the government doesn't necessarily know who is responsible for the terrorist attack. Um, The downside is that it doesn't actually move you any closer to your own political objectives. It just disrupts disrupts other political objectives, more moderate political objectives being achieved. It prolongs the conflict, but that could lead in the end to your defeat rather than your victory. So what comes out of this uh, whole sort of inventory of the way that terrorism gets used, and this is all sort of drawing on how terrorism is talked about, the strategies of terrorism in the terrorism literature, are a set of hypotheses. I think that we should find that terrorism will make military victory the best outcome for rebel groups, least likely for the reasons I've given. It has no military, direct military value and it tends to undermine popular support. I also think it should make the second best outcome for rebels less likely, again, because it's not militarily effective and so governments should be less likely to negotiate and make concessions to groups that they are less threatened by militarily and because it mis- generates mistrust and spoils agreements that might otherwise occur. But I think that terrorism should lead to longer wars. It's hard to defeat groups that use terrorism outright, um, and there are these spoiling dynamics that should also lead to longer war. So those are the the main hypotheses. So what do I find? So I'm going to show you first just a basic. um, This is just a bivariate relationship between uh, this is dyadic groups, so one rebel group fighting a government. Sometimes there are several rebel groups as part of the same war. They're treated separately here. Whether or not they use terrorism, the green ones don't use terrorism, and the, the red columns show the ones that do use terrorism, and the outcome of the war. This is not taking anything else into account. We know that terrorism doesn't get used randomly, so you should be a little bit skeptical of this, but it's a nice way to visualize um, what happens. Um, And the things that are most, that should be jumping out at you from this graph are that You know, things over here on the right are the better outcomes from the rebels' perspective. There are actually no cases in the data that I'm looking at where a group that uses terrorism as a systematic strategy of indiscriminate violence against civilians wins their war outright. And the second best outcome for rebels is also the negotiated agreement is also much less likely for groups that use terrorism than groups that don't. Uh, The worse outcomes are a little bit more likely for groups that use terrorism than those that don't. But uh, this is just a snapshot. This is what was happening at the, whether the, whether the war had, was ongoing as of 2004. Um, the wars that are ongoing are, are tend to be the ones that have terrorism, which suggests that maybe terrorism does lead to longer wars. So this is a kind of basic way of looking at it, but again, doesn't take anything else into account. To take other stuff into account we need multivariate uh, analysis. And so I run two sets of analyses here. One is a hazard analysis or duration analysis. I can talk about the mechanics of this in Q&A if you're interested. Um, but this is a Cox proportional hazard analysis of the um, what's referred to as the hazard of war ending in any given point, given that it hasn't ended so far. And what's shown here is the rate at which wars end. And as you can see, the, the wars in which rebels use terrorism uh, end more slowly, or last longer than uh, wars in which terrorism is not used. And so terrorism reduces the risk of war ending at any given point by about 60 percent all else equal. So here controlling for whether or not you're fighting a democracy, the relative strength of the rebels uh, versus the government, uh, whether it's a secessionist group, all of those other things that I talked about in the first part of the talk. So that's support for the hypothesis that terrorism leads to longer wars. What about uh, how uh, terrorist groups fare? This is really the key thing for judging the effectiveness of terrorism. So again, on the left are the things that are worse for rebels, and on the right are things that are better for uh, the rebels. This is a competing risks analysis, and so you have to look at each outcome on its own relative to all the others. Um, And what you can see here is that um, the groups that use terrorism, which are the, I don't know if you can see the difference in colors in the rest of the room, but uh, here the red line is the group that, the groups that use terrorism, um, they're much more like these wars are much more likely to end in government victory than the non-terrorism ones, in fact, four times more likely. Um, so that's the worst outcome for rebels. Terrorism leads to the worst outcomes. There's actually not any difference uh, in using terrorism or not for the wars that fizzle out in low activity but then the good outcomes from the rebels' perspective become much less likely if you use terrorism than if you don't. So you're much less likely to use uh, to, to reach a negotiated agreement, 80% less, and this outcome shouldn't be surprising given the previous guide. I don't have any cases where terrorist rebel groups um, achieve rebel victory, so using terrorism reduces your chances of rebel victory in these data to zero. So the, the upshot of this is that terrorism is not particularly good for reaching the good outcomes if you're a rebel group. Um, okay, so let me let me take a little sidestep to think about uh, terrorism and democracy. So in the first part of the talk I, I made the argument that terrorism should be more likely to be used against democracies because it's more effective against democracies. So is that true empirically? First of all, why would we think it's true? I've alluded to this already, that uh, if you're using terrorism against a democracy, you've got accountability working in your favor that pain inflicted on civilians should affect uh, governments more than in in an autocracy, the provocation argument that you can move democracies into the kind of just right middling level of brutality more easily, Um, and there should be less backlash if the um, population itself is seen by the aggrieved population as more complicitous. So is it true that terrorism is more effective against democracies than against non-democracies? So this gets a little bit hard to see visually, so I'll just walk you through it a little bit here. This is the same sort of competing risks analysis. Given the smaller numbers of cases, I have to combine the two um, bad outcomes. So this is failure from the government, from the rebels' perspective, so wars ending in either government activity or fizzling out. Um, and here you can see that the top two lines compare terrorism, not, terrorism and not-terrorism, in autocracies or non-democracies. And here we see again the, the kind of effect we saw in the previous slide. These bad outcomes become more likely for groups that use terrorism. But in the context of democracies comparing terrorist groups and not terrorist groups, there's actually no statistically significant difference, and if anything, um, terrorism works a little bit better than non-terrorism against democracies. If we flip it around and look... Oh, sorry, that's just saying what I already said. Um, if we flip it around and look at the competing risks analysis on successful outcomes from the rebel's perspective, negotiated agreements and a, a rebel victory, um, there's essentially not much difference, but there's a slightly less negative effect of using terrorism if you're fighting a democracy than if you're fighting a non-democracy. So the the effects here are these these two lines are the difference between non-terrorism and terrorism in non-democracies and then these two lines with that arrow are the effect of terrorism versus non-terrorism in the context of a democratic government. Um, So that does suggest that terrorism is still ineffective even against democracies but it is less ineffective than it is against autocracies. So terrorism is relatively more effective against democracies than non-democracies, but still not very effective, if that makes sense. Um, So I've prattled on for a long time. Let me just wrap up. I think that the kind of value added or the contribution of this project is, as I said at the beginning, the ability to compare relatively similar groups and groups on which we happen to have a lot of good data and so we can control for a lot of things and make meaningful comparisons among groups to compare rebel groups that use terrorism and those that don't to answer these basic questions. So why do some groups resort to terrorism? Here I think the answer has to do with variation in how effective or how relatively ineffective terrorism will be in different contexts and that hinges largely uh, on Uh, the legitimacy costs. Where those costs are higher, we should see less terrorism. Where those costs are are lower, we should see more terrorism. And I've talked about democracy, secessionism, and religious difference. I'm hoping in the next stage of this project to get better data on the government abuses and repression piece, um, and also on the rebel financing piece to test this argument more thoroughly. That part of the analysis also casts some doubt on the conventional wisdom, particularly the the idea that terrorism is a weapon of the weak in the sense, not in the sense that those who use it are weaker than the governments that they fight, because that's true pretty much of all rebel groups, but in a relative terms, that groups that are, are weak relative to other rebel groups will be more likely to use terrorism than stronger groups. I'm not finding support for that, rather surprisingly. Um, And I can talk about some caveats about limitations of the data I have so far and how I'm hoping that the new data will overcome them in Q&A if you're interested. Also not finding support for arguments about outbidding or extremism once we're not thinking about it in tautological terms and no support for the idea that Muslim rebels are more likely to use terrorism. And turning to the second question, is terrorism effective? The short answer is no. Um, It's not effective for achieving political goals. Um, It does help, however, with organizational survival. Groups that use terrorism, those wars last longer. So those rebel groups last longer, more organizational survival. So that sets up a little bit of a dilemma for rebel groups. Um, I often get the question when I give this the, especially the second part of this talk about effectiveness, if it's not effective, why do groups use it? And my like, tongue-in-cheek answer is, well, they haven't read my analysis yet. Right? They, as soon as they read my paper, they'll stop using terrorism. Um, I don't really think that's true, although I hope it, it would be nice if it were true. But I think part of it has to do with a dynamic of at some point during the conflict, the need for organizational survival may take over and be prioritized over um, the need to reach your political goals. And that might explain why we see terrorism, even though it is ineffective. Um, but the short answer is that terrorists don't win. So I'll stop there. Thanks.
1: Well, um, if I may, I'll ask you a question. Yes. And perhaps we can open it up to everybody and you'd like can you just call on people. Okay, great. Right. I had two questions about the data. You know, obviously so much turns on on how things are coded, when mm-hmm. the are chosen. And you were talking about this particularly important distinction between um, violence directed at civilians that might be described as targeted control measures mm-hmm. going after somebody because they might be working with the government, that sort of thing. And then the untargeted, more wide-open class mm-hmm. of terrorism that's your main interest. Um, and I guess I'm just wondering how, how you can reliably know for any given attack which box it falls in as between those two. Or I guess you mentioned that Jessica Stanton had been involved in doing this, so maybe it's more right. how how did she... Right. Was there a particular answer to how to parse those two categories? Because it's not obvious yep. to me it would be clear and Right. maybe Sometimes it would be not obvious. Um, I have a follow-up question, but I, I'll, I'll leave it okay. there. Okay,
0: okay. Um, yeah, so that's a great question. So one of the things that I like about um, Stanton's data is that I think she does a really good job of this because she's looking not at an individual attack and whether there might have been somebody in the marketplace that a group was trying to kill because they thought that they was collaborating with the other side. She's looking at the difference between groups that systematically use these types of indiscriminate types of attacks. So bombing is more indiscriminate than coming up with somebody with a gun or you know necklacing somebody with a burning tire or some of the other ways that you can conf- kill civilians if you know who it is that you're trying to target. So if you're setting off a bomb in a crowded public place, you know you're going to kill a lot of people. Um, And so she's using the type of attack as a way to get at this. And she's not saying that a group uh, is, is terrorist if they do this once, right? This has to be a systematic pattern of using these types of attacks in public areas. Um, So I think she does a pretty good job of sorting those out. Now, in the new data that I'm trying to put together, I'm using um, the Global Terrorism Database, which is incident-based, and I'm trying to think exactly about this problem of how do I use information that's in that database to distinguish attacks that are more likely to be indiscriminate than discriminant. And there's going to be some error and some fuzziness, but I'm relying on things like the type of attack, so um, bombing types of attacks as opposed to, um, and, and assault types of attacks as opposed to um, more specific kinds of things, and the target. So are you if it's coded as an assassination, it doesn't fall in my category, right? So it's considered terrorism in the GTD data, but not for me because that's a, that's a targeted attack. So where the attack takes place... And, and the type of attack it is can help us, not with 100% accuracy, but generally get at, if you're using a type of weapon um, and setting off bombs and things in places where you expect there to be a lot of people, that's much more likely to be indiscriminate as opposed to attacking a particular um, kind of, a, a more discrete type of target. That
1: makes sense. Well, let's open up to the room. And I'll you wanna the see, one you one want to see, okay. you want know, okay, okay, it's, great. It's yeah, can. here. First, um, thank you for coming. Um, Thanks for having me. I apologize if this is a little bit out um, of of the scope of your research or your expertise, but to what extent do you find it valuable or useful, the argument that, um, I know you said that that it's it's not generally effective, but the idea that um, they think, minority groups think that terrorism is useful to draw attention to their cause. Um, For example, it sometimes seems like Hamas wants Palestinians to be killed um, in reprisal because it draws—it's just a narrative in their favor—and then also uh, terrorism is effective as to the extent that if the government doesn't negotiate with them, it's more likely to negotiate with, you know, maybe moderates that more closely align with them. So I mean, that kind of goes with like that idea that uh, Martin Luther King's nonviolent protests work because of. Malcolm X's violent rhetoric, or that Mm -hmm. India is more likely to have, um, you know, more open to autonomy for Kashmir because of Pakistan, Mm -hmm. Pakistani militants, Um, and and then to what extent do you think, like, you know, terrorism is necessary? You know, maybe as a trade-off for like a liberal order with like the world growing and an increasingly loud world, these minority groups it gives them uh, maybe a a little bit of a voice. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well I, I think I, that last point I think is connected to your first point about using this to gain attention to your cause. And so that's what I was talking about when I'm thinking about the strategy of propaganda of the deed or, or um, um, trying to get attention to your cause. So um, that's certainly an argument that sorry, slow to scroll back through this. Um, that one. So this is certainly an argument that's out there, and it's one that I take seriously and try to think about what using terrorism does as opposed to doing other kinds of things for this kind of strategy. So I think that in, um, in conflicts that haven't escalated to the level of a full-scale war, this might be a more effective strategy than in the context of civil wars for the reason I gave it. If you're in a civil war, people know like these are big events that certainly people within the country itself already know about and probably the international community knows about it as well it might be more effective, this strategy might be more effective in kind of conflicts that happen in obscure corners of a large country where people in the capital don't necessarily know what's going on. So I think there is something to this argument, and I think there's certainly evidence that when groups use these kinds of tactics, they think this is what they're they're doing. Um, And I think it may help you get attention. The question is then, does that attention help you actually achieve your political goals, or does it just get your conflict on the map? But you don't end up winning it or getting a negotiated agreement. So I don't doubt that it helps get things on the map. Um, my the question then is: Does it? Do groups that get their conflicts on the map this way um, are they more likely to win or have a negotiated settlement than than other groups? And what I'm finding is no. Although it's possible that I just haven't parsed things quite carefully enough to get there. Um, and the second part of your question I think really is an argument about provocation, right? So Hamas likes it when Palestinians get killed because that fits with their narrative. This is right, this is using an attack to get the Israelis to crack down, to kill innocent Palestinians, and that gets Palestinians in general to support Hamas, it gets the world in general to support the Palestinian cause. So again, I think this is definitely something that this is definitely there's plenty of evidence particularly from the cases that this is what groups are doing when they use terrorism, this is the kind of thing they're doing, but it's the same sort of thing. Maybe you then get a lot more people knowing about and sympathetic to your cause, but does it translate into actually getting the political concessions or winning your wars outright, and there it doesn't seem to be relative to other things that you can do. Um, the, the question about um, whether having uh, groups that are extremist in the sense of their tactics as opposed to their goals, so groups that are using terrorism, help more moderate groups uh, concessions being made to more moderate groups or to the population as a whole. This is a really interesting question, and it's one I've been trying to think about how to get at empirically, and I really can't very well with these data. But um, this is sort of like you know our terrorists playing good cop, bad cop, right? Like you've got the you've got the sort of the bad guys who are doing this stuff, so that the government will make concessions to the the good representatives of whatever the population is. Um, I think there might be something to that, and what I'd like to do eventually in this in this project, whether I do it you know more qualitatively on a a smaller number of cases, or figure out a way to code this over a larger number of cases, is to look at not how the the war between this extremist, uh, in, in terms of aims, gr- group and the government, but whether there are concessions made along the way to the population as a whole, um, which would be a way to get at this. So it's a long-winded uh, way of saying, I think you might be onto something, but I don't have the data to show it yet. Yeah, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, yeah, like yep. I actually have, so
0: a, I have a more elaborate Venn diagram. I'll so get to they, that while you're talking.
2: Um, they use terrorism but aren't in the rebel group territory. Like with the Palestine example, or
1: that, is that one that's in the Civil War?
2: goes up to 2004,
0: is that right? the, the Stanton data goes to 2004. That- the data I'm collecting goes to 2010, or if it takes me long enough to collect it, I might have to then do yeah. the, the through 2012. I'm getting lapped by the GTD.
2: You know, I'm wondering if, um, you know, if there's a, like, if you think about newer rebel groups,
1: if, are they learning lessons, and are they learning the
2: long-gone long lessons because they haven't read your work? Like, why would
1: you them, <laughs> choose to embrace this as a strategy? Mm-hmm. And are there any sort of case studies that try to... Like, how we do it or not, because I know, it's kind of like, I know it works in the data, but I'd like to see right. it work
0: in real right. cases. Yep, yep, okay, great questions. Um, lots of questions in there. So, yeah, so, so one limitation of the study is the flip side of the benefit of the study, right? So I can look at, groups that use terrorism and groups that don't because I'm looking at this universe of cases of civil wars. And what I've got so far are the data just on the full-scale wars. One of the main reasons to try to get this larger data set is to look at a larger set of lower levels of conflicts because I'm not getting sort of the weakest groups here, right, because I'm I'm selecting only ones that are large-scale wars. and there's lots of stuff that happens outside of the context of civil wars, as you mentioned. So by, by getting the larger set, I'm getting more of it, but I'm still not going to get all of it, right? I'm not going to get um, opposition groups that use terrorism but never use, never target militaries, right? Because then they won't – they're, by definition, not involved in a civil war. Um, so that's a limitation of the study. Um, there's, there's also – I'm focusing on – civil conflicts, not international or transnational conflicts. So most of the literature on terrorism, particularly the empirical quantitative literature, looks at transnational terrorism because until recently the data on that side were better than the data on domestic terrorism. But empirically the vast majority of terrorism is domestic terrorism, usually in the context of a civil conflict, whether or not it's escalated all the way to a full-scale war. Um, so so partly these are data questions and partly there's, a, there's an issue of for the transnational groups, so for particularly Al-Qaeda, um, the issue is I think a lot of what I'm saying probably applies to transnational groups too. Um, but the problem is that there isn't, I don't know what the non-terrorist transnational groups are to study them. So there isn't a way to get this variation of comparing the terrorist transnational groups to the non-terrorist transnational groups, because that, I don't know what, Conceptually, I don't even quite know what that category is, so it makes it very hard um, to study. So um, so I'm not making strong claims about whether transnational terrorism is effective or why it gets used, because I don't, I can't, I'd be extrapolating beyond my data. Now if you think that the logic of what I'm saying makes sense and would hold for transnational terrorism, then maybe it holds, but empirically I can't um, say for sure. Um, Specifically, whether some of the conflicts that you mentioned are in the data or not, the Palestinian conflict certainly is in the data. So both Fatah and Hamas are coded in the data that I have so far. In the larger set of of data that I'm developing, there's a larger range of Palestinian groups um, besides just those two. Um, ISIL, if the data went up far enough, ISIL would be included, right? It fits in the definition, but it isn't in the data that I've got so far. Um, um, uh, Boko Haram also isn't in the data that I have so far, but would be and will be in the new and extended version of the data. Um, so, what gets excluded, as I said, are tra- groups that are transnational only, right? Not groups that are involved in a civil conflict but also carry out transnational attacks. Those are included, but if a group only operates transnationally. So, Al Qaeda in Iraq is in the data. Uh, ISIL, is in the data or, would, or will be in the data when the data go up that far in time. Um, but al-Qaeda itself, in terms of attacks on the US, are not in the data. Um, why Boko Haram is using these strategies? Um, I mean, I think this is a really good question. I think there's an interesting phenomenon that I haven't yet figured out, which is that in the data I've got so far, um, terrorism is much, much less likely to be used by groups in Africa. And there's some arguments out there about why that might be. Um, that governments are weaker in Africa, that terrain is more conducive to insurgency. But even after I control for all of those things, there still seems to be this Africa effect. Um, so I don't know quite why that is, and it also seems like that's maybe less true over time, right? So Boko Haram and al-Shabaab have started using these kinds of tactics. So there seems to be something that's happened over time, which suggests that there might be diffusion effects, right? So groups. Um, I think that there's something going on, and I don't have data to, to prove this yet. Um, I'm hoping that this will come through in the fieldwork part of these projects, um, of whether terrorism is sort of in the repertoire of tactics that groups think about. Um, so I think for some groups they just it doesn't cross their mind, and then either at some point because it gets used in highly visible ways elsewhere or is seen to be successful in other cases that seem salient to that group. It starts to get used, or maybe groups that thought about it decide not to use it for these kind of learning from other kinds of um, conflicts uh, ways. The question about whether there are studies out there about groups who thought about it, and there, are, um, there, there is some evidence from the ANC case and from the IRA case of memoirs and internal documents showing groups thinking about these kinds of things. And the IRA case is really quite interesting because they do engage in these kinds of tactics, but in a very restrained way. Um, And you see a lot of these dynamics through the IRA case. Um, I have a grad student who's just finishing a dissertation uh, largely on the IRA, and as I read it, I'm like, ooh, evidence for that argument, ooh, evidence for this argument. I'm I'm seeing that a lot in his case stuff. Um, So that's why I want to get to the get to the case studies and the field work, but I'm not there yet. The strategy is to use the quantitative part to figure out some good cases that will give me variation. I think the cases I want to look at are insurgencies in India, because there are a bunch of them and some of those groups use terrorism and some don't, and they're all fighting the same government, a democratic government, so that's interesting. Maybe look at the PKK because they changed their strategy over time, so why did they go from not using terrorism as I define it to using terrorism? so yeah, a lot of the, I'll have better answers for you. I don't know, being chair makes this project go extremely slowly. So I don't know, in five years or something, I might have some answers for you. Yeah. Alan.
2: Thanks, but, um, one of the main findings, and of the main finding on outcomes, is that groups that resort to terrorism have a correlation with less good outcomes. hmm The conventional explanation of that would be that groups that are relatively weaker compared to the government, mm-hmm. have two, uh, uh, relative, let's say, relatively stronger compared to the government, have two qualities. Number one, they're more likely to get good outcomes. The clear and, clear outcome. and two, that they're less likely to resort to terror. Mm-hmm. And so therefore you would find a correlation between yep. not resorting to terror and good outcome, but it would be a spurious. Mm-hmm. And you made an offhand comment that, that you measure it as weak relative
3: to other rebel groups, but that's not what the theory says. Mm. The weapon of the weak. The theory says weak relative to
0: the government that they're fighting. Yep. And so uh, I misspoke uh, there a bit. I'll clarify. You have a measure for weakness relative to the government. Yep.
2: Uh, they're Fighting, not weakness
0: relative to other Yeah. Rebel yeah. No, I miss, I misspoke a bit in that. So it's a little bit complicated because it is. It's measured as for each group, weak, uh, weakness or strength relative to the government they're fighting. But the variation in that variable is relative weakness across the to their own government across the groups. That's not a very I'm, I'm not quite sure how to <laughs> how to say that in a way that makes sense. So a group that is coded as being at parity with its government, and then there's another group that's coded as being weaker than its government, relative to each other, the latter one is weaker. In this measure than the former one, but the measure is, so it is based on it's it's relative to the government. How you to the government. That? So I didn't measure this. This is data from um, Cunningham, Gladisch, and Sillian who have this data dyadic data um, from the UCDP data set. So um, they looked through for each. Uh, Pair right each dyad each rebel group relative to the government it's fighting it's a five point scale from much stronger stronger parity weaker much weaker there are almost no cases that are much stronger um, and there are very few that are even stronger so most of the variation is parity weaker much weaker and it's a it's an index that includes information on several things um, fighting capacity um, ability to mobilize um, and ability to acquire weapons and then those components are also independent so i can i can look at them individually Um, So that's the main measure that I'm using, but I also broke it into each of these things. Because people who talk about weakness sometimes mean military weakness, sometimes they mean weakness in terms of support, um, sometimes they mean other things. The other variable that helps me get at this, there are a couple other ones. One is um, there's also a coding of whether the rebel group controls territory. So if we think that's a proxy for being a stronger group, if you're able to hold territory, you're stronger. Um, So that's another one that I've looked at. and sometimes the arguments are about sort of favorability of terrain. So rough terrain, it's not really your strength, but it's kind of your, your ability or something um, on the, the idea that if you're fighting in rough terrain, you're in a stronger military position relative to the government to conduct insurgent attacks on on military targets. And so I've broken it up in all of these different ways, and I'm not finding anything. Now, it's possible that this measure just isn't any good, Um, but it's the best thing that's out there. Um, And so you would think that if there was something to this, that it would be showing up here. Even if there weren't strong effects, they should at least be going in the right direction or something, and they're not. Now, the biggest caveat, as I think I mentioned going through, is that because the data that i have so far are looking only at full scale wars i'm selecting stronger groups that maybe once i start looking at a larger range of conflicts with groups the weaker end of the spectrum i will see that those groups are more likely to use terrorism than the groups up at the high end of the spectrum so i'm truncating you know i've truncated the independent variable here but within that truncated range i'm not seeing what you should expect if the weapon of the weak argument holds yeah Yeah, so the current data, I can't um, get at that directly, although there is something in the current data that speaks to this. So, um, but this is the main motivation to get this new set of data that has annual you know, use of, of terrorist attacks to try to get at trajectories over time. Um, the interesting thing in the Stanton data, which does not vary over time, she codes whether a group uses terrorism as a systematic strategy or it doesn't, um, and I had a back and forth with her as she was writing the dissertation and then as I started using the data about this, about whether she sees vari- in the coding that she did delving into individual you know, sources on these individual cases, where she, whether she saw groups use it at the – because there's also the opposite – argument, or not the opposite argument, but there are arguments that it gets used at both ends, right? You use it early on as a way to, to mobilize support. This is sort of the Maoist idea, right? You use terrorism early or the, the um, quip, I think it's Ariel Morari who says, like, terrorists want to be gorillas when they grow up. Like, you use it early on, and then when you, if you get strong enough, you stop using it and switch to guerrilla tactics. Or you use it, as you mentioned, if you've been fighting for a while and defeat is impending, then you switch to this tactic. Um, so I'm interested in this idea of change over time. Um, but the, in the coding that Stanton did, again, of this fairly limited set of cases, just post-Cold War, just full-scale wars, There are almost no cases where she saw a switch from using it to not using it or not using it to using it. One of the, really the only one that are in these data is the PKK, which didn't use it early on and then starts to use it. But all the rest, how much they use it might vary, and I don't have the data to get at that, but using it at all doesn't seem to vary, which is interesting in itself and suggest that there isn't this, you use it early and then you graduate out of it or you turn to it at the very end. Where there is some very, where there is some change over time is groups that stop using it as part of a negotiation process, right? Okay, we'll stop using this, con- but then it's really part of the negotiated settlement. It's, it's, it's clear that concessions are coming, they're already being committed to, we'll hold back on this to build trust. So that's a slightly different, um, and in fact the opposite logic of using it when you're desperate. You use it when you're about to, to gain these concessions. Uh, but that's that's a large part of the motivation to collect the new data. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Did you look at the effect of having a, a rebel group using terrorism that is backed by a larger entity? I'm thinking specifically of North Vietnam and the and, a, and, a, and a, a Vietnamese stuff using these terrorists who uh who rebels who were using terrorist factors, but they were basically backed, much the same as Ed and, mm-hmm. and would be, let me a look at the, the, mm-hmm. the impact, of, say, for sustainability, mm-hmm. uh, support of terrorist tactics against populations. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Sort of so this is a piece, I went through it kind of fast in the interest of time, but part of the argument about looking at, at rebel financing or rebel support is exactly this, that that if a group, and the, the what I'm thinking about is really in terms of, Okay, a group has to, it needs money, it needs weapons, it needs all of these things. Where is it getting these things from? If it's getting them from outsiders, it's less beholden to the local population. And so the domestic legitimacy costs of terrorism are lower. And so we might expect groups to be more freed up to target the civilian, the local civilian population. Um, On the other hand, it kind of depends on whether the external supporter cares about whether or not you use terrorism. If they are opposed to that, then they might actually be a, a way of restraining a rebel group. So so the the hypothesis here, and again, I don't have the data yet to to test it, is that groups that are relying on no humans, right? They're relying on drugs and crime, essentially, are the least constrained. Those who are relying on outsiders, it depends on who the outsider is. And the kind of rough hypothesis or proxy I I want to use for that are, are they supported by a democracy or are they supported by a non-democracy on the idea that democracies are more um, committed to the norm against terrorism, on average, than non-democracies. That might be faulty logic, that piece of it. But there is a little bit of work. There's some work by Aydin Salian and a couple of co-authors looking at external support and targeting of civilians writ large, so not the narrower set of, of targeting that I'm looking at, but just um, there's another data set on one-sided violence, so all targeting of civilians. And they find exactly that pattern, that groups that are um, that have external support are more likely to use terrorism unless they're supported by a democracy, in which case they're less likely to target civilians. So there is some other work on that. Yeah, I'm just going to keep moving this way. Yeah.
2: Uh, You mentioned that one of the the cons uh, is uh, uh, that uh, you may have a uh, rally around the flag Mm -hmm. phenomenon on behalf of the government. Why couldn't it work the other way in the sense that the uh, public believes, uh, sees that uh, the government feels that the government is unable to Mm-hmm. And, and hence, you have a chipping away at the legitimacy of the government, and perhaps uh, uh, through intimidation, uh, whatever, actually gain uh, at least acquiescence, if not uh, support, on the part of the uh,
3: uh, on the part of the public.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that is an argument that's certainly out there, and it's often made. This idea that you use, that a group uses terrorism to destabilize and undermine the legitimacy of the government for exactly exactly the way um, you you phrased it. Um, and a sort of intimidation. Well, the intimidation thing, I think, is separate. Right? The intimidation, for me, falls more in the targeting of collaborators and trying to control the population. Um, and this argument is made, and, and it's possible that it, that it works, that you sort of undermine the ability of the government or the trust that the people have that government will keep them safe, and then you can kind of sweep in to victory. But it, it requires a kind of odd set of calculations for the civilian population to think, okay, the government's unable to protect me, so now I'm going to support the group that's attacking me, right? That's a slightly odd switch. Now, it may be that you just want to support the strongest group out there. So if you think these guys are going to ride into town, then you support them, because if you don't support them, you're going to get killed, right? And that certainly seems to be the dynamic in a lot of these um um, conflicts. But if you think about whether the whether you're more likely to support a government that's riding into town and killing a lot of civilians as opposed to riding into town and targeting the military, um, then you'd think you would you would rather support the group that seems like they're going to target the military. Um, so I think the destabilization argument works better for insurgent attacks against the military or against, Government institutions. So one of the things that I'm um, that don't fall into this this measure that I'm using here, or as I collect the new um, data that I will exclude, are attacks on um, government facilities, police, things like that. They're not strictly military targets, but they're not indiscriminate attacks of innocent civilians, right? They're sort of attacks on the state apparatus. So I think that kind of attack works the way that you're talking about, but the kind of attack that I'm talking about, I think, doesn't. But I could be wrong empirically about that. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. My question is uh, regarding uh, how you balance frame of reference. The first question is kind of relevant to the question. Uh, the question I just mentioned So uh, uh, this example may maybe uh, not, not perfectly relevant. Like you not know, the Chinese Communist Party used to be the rebel group, so-called rebel group. Mm-hmm. Now. Mm-hmm. government and you know how you define civilian government I think it, it matters like you know what it is um mm-hmm. various groups and all that and the second <coughs> the second question is you measure effective, effectiveness and achievement of political goals but that's kind of the, the you know the in-group uh, in-group kind of perception of uh, the impact terrorist from an outsiders perspective. So it, you mean, if I'm a terrorist, I mean just like one of you know, just many political parties. I'm not a terrorist. So in terms of the impact, so exactly how you balance, you know, from whose perspective and what uh, what kind of metric do you use, like mm-hmm. as
0: Okay, let me answer the first one first. I'm not entirely sure I understand the second one, but I'll try to answer, and then if I haven't understood it correctly, you can tell me. Um, so, right, there are cases where rebels then become the government. And I should have said early on, and I forgot to, that I'm looking at use of terrorism by rebels. Um, I There's a huge debate in the literature about whether terrorism can only be perpetrated by non-state actors or whether there's such a thing as state terrorism. And... Um, I sidestep that entirely by just looking at the rebels. So I'm not. I'm not. Um, I'm not looking at whether terrorism is effective when government when states use it, just when rebels use it. So I'm kind of. I'm kind of stepping away from that. So if a, go- if a rebel group takes power and the conflict continues, the former government is now the rebels. Then I'm not looking at what the government. The the former rebels, now government do, now I'm looking at the former government that are now rebels and what, what they do. Um, the one place where I do look at, where I where I will look at what the government is doing is this idea of looking at um, how the use of severe repression or targeting, of specific, specifically targeting of civilians by the government might affect use of terrorism by the rebels. So that's the place that that would come in. Um, so I, I, I do actually think that states use terrorism or something like it. It looks a little bit different because they have the apparatus of the state behind them, but I'm not evaluating the effectiveness of that. My hunch is that terrorism is actually more effective for governments than for rebels, but that's, but I, that's just a hunch. Um, the second question, so I, I'm, I'm definitely looking at effectiveness from the rebels' perspective. So um, whether the rebels win outright or achieve a negotiated settlement has to do with whether they are getting what they are fighting for, not what somebody else might want. Does that I'm not sure does that answer the second question or am I missing something? Yes ma'am,
3: but you like, shouldn't like media like, coverage and the uh, recruitment, as you mentioned, like some some folks use that as uh, you know a measure for
0: uh, Right, and, uh, so... Like,
3: and the uh, kind of perceived civilians perceive the terror
0: of that So they're kind of these intermediate goals mobilizing support, mobilizing general support, mobilizing recruit, getting more funding, getting your your cause on the international agenda. All of those things are things that rebel groups might want to do, and terrorism might be good for some of those things. Um, but if that doesn't then translate into achieving your ultimate political goals, it hasn't done you that much good. Maybe it's done you good organizationally, but it hasn't done you much good in terms of your ultimate political objectives. So one thing I would like to do in this project, although I keep kind of adding things to this project and it may never end if I keep doing this, is to look at these intermediate stages, right? And I think this might come through more clearly in case studies and field work that does do these kinds of tactics, help you mobilize support, but then somehow that support doesn't translate into winning your war outright or getting a negotiated settlement. So does it mobilize the wrong sort of support or, you know, what's going on? So I'd like to look at both parts of that causal chain, the effect of terrorism on the intermediate goals and then on the ultimate goals. This is just looking at the two ends, the use of terrorism and the ultimate goals. The theory has to do with how it goes through these intermediate goals, but I don't actually have observations of, you know, I don't have measures of how many people support a group um, or whether they're getting more money from outsiders or any of those things. So that's something I'd like to do um, in the, the field work. Um, through interviews with general population and with members of current or probably more likely ex-rebel uh, groups um, and also maybe doing some kind of surveys or survey experiments where you can see the effect of terrorism on levels of support, on recruitment, um, on those kinds of things. Well, actually, we've Are we out of time? Sort of okay, I can't.
1: time, but maybe we could have some more colloquy after this. But yeah. I want to make sure we give a proper round of applause to our wonderful guests. Thank you, Bobby.
0: Thanks very much. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for great questions and great feedback. I appreciate it.